morning to everyone. This is going to involve a little bit of graphicness, a little bit of description. And if you have a weak stomach or you are a little sensitive to certain things, shy away and protect yourself and be careful. Now, this is an episode I've long wanted to do. I've long wanted to get into this for a very, very, very detailed amount of time and get into it. I have studied and in depth read a lot about mountain climbing, particularly Everest in the Himalaya and K2 in the Karakoram. Now, I've and I've a lot of things, a lot of the stories and books and documentaries and stuff about what has happened is very interesting to me. The details of what those adventures and what those stories entail are incredible. The the limits to which people push their body and the limits to which people can, how far they can go and how far they they extend themselves is incredible. And their actions, yes, can be debated and there can be thought about certain things in certain ways. And yes, you can be thought about things and you can debate what they chose, but there's no doubt that these people who have sought this out have are incredible athletes and incredible adventurers and have courage that most people don't have to look into the face of something so overwhelming, something that's so downtrodden, something that forces to put threatens to push them down and force them down so much that they stand up against it and they say, you know what, I've dreamt about this or I've wanted to do this. I'm going to do it and I'm going to and I'm going to do it and be my best at it. And that is incredibly envious. That is incredibly awesome and very, very cool. And a lot of the stories on any mountain, for example, out here, Mount Rainier and throughout the Cascades, throughout the Adirondacks and the Olympics and throughout mountains everywhere the adventures and the things that people do is incredible is unbelievably beyond awesome now I focus primarily and I study primarily on mountaineering in general but on the Himalaya and the Karakoram and with mountains as high as Everest 29,035 feet and K2 28,251 feet there, there's a lot, as, as much as positive, because they've both been summited, as much as positives as there is, there's also a lot of tragedy. There's also a lot of negatives and a lot of depressing and very sad things. And you get to the point where it gets, it gets tough to hear, but you want to talk about it, not only because this whole thing is very, like to me, it's very, very interesting to it, but you kind of want to remember the people who have endured this and have fought through this and have and have tried to accomplish as much as they can and done as much as they can you envy them and you want to keep their memory alive and tell their story and have the world remember them for the adventures that they were and the adventures that they still are and a lot of stories come out around Everest and K2 a lot of stories in K2 though it's the second tallest mountain in the world it has often been called as the most dangerous or the most technical and the most lethal because it's a virtual pyramid. It's almost a perfect pyramid. And it's extremely dangerous and extremely difficult to climb. Like, for example, in the bottleneck 
there is, as climbers are climbing to the summit through the bottleneck, there is a SEREC, S-E-R-A-C. There is a SEREC that overhangs the route that climbers have to climb and they have to go underneath it. And when they go up that, that SEREC overhangs them, their path. And it's not secured to the mountain. It's not attached to the mountain at all. And it overhangs the route. And any part of the, the SEREC can can fall at any time and can collapse and fall at any time and the willingness of people to undertake this adventure to undertake this risk and overcome this is incredible is is admirable and you have to kind of admire people for being able to fight back to stand up against everything that keeps them down and to overcome it and then try and fight against it. It's just incredibly admirable and incredibly, an incredible, wonderful thing to do. And I, beyond, beyond anything, I admire and admire these people and admire anyone who, who does that and can do this. But a lot of stories about Everest and K2 are, like I said, are tragedies because you never really, as in any place in the world, you never really hear about positives. They're the climber's immediate family and everyone around them hears about the positives and summoning like on Everest and K2 you get views around the world that is unrivaled anywhere else except maybe like on a jet plane because <laughs> planes can go higher than that and you can get views if you look out the window most people aren't because they're reading sleeping or watching things but anyway, you can get review of views from Everest and K2 like nowhere else in the world. And you get the satisfaction of knowing, hey, I did this. I pushed myself and I climbed this and I overcame this obstacle that was trying to force me down and keep me down. K2 has, as is, as does every mountain, Aconcagua and, and Mount Rainier, all, they all have tragedies. And K2 has the memor- to memorialize the, tra- the tragedy of Rolf Bay and, and his wife, Cecile Skog, who is, Cecile is still alive, but um, the memories of, of Rolf and Jer McDonald and everyone, and to memorialize them for the adventures that they are and what they did. And it's a great thing, but Everest also has... Everest has a long tale of tragedy and a long tale of things that can be learned from climbing and their adventures to teach people. A lot of them is Rob Hall, Scott Fisher, Andy Harris, Doug Hansen, um, Sergei Arsentiev and his wife and his wife Frances. This is the story and the legend of what kind of an adventurer Sergei and Frances were and what kind of legacy they leave behind and how they're immortalized and how you can remember them and it all kind of started one night back in 1998 11 year old Paul Stefano woke up from a terrible nightmare in it he had seen two climbers stuck on a mountain trapped in a sea of whiteness and unable to escape the snow that seemed to be almost attacking them Paul was so disturbed that he immediately called his mother upon waking. He thought it could be no coincidence that he had the terrible nightmare the night before she was due to leave on an expedition to climb Mount Everest. De Stefano's mother brushed off his fears, however, and insisted that she was going forward with her trip, 
telling her son, I have to do this. She had, it was, it was a dream of hers. It was something that she wanted to do. Something that she had dreamed of. Something that she had had in all of her, in all of her thoughts. In all of her, in all of her thinking. All of everything that she had gone through. She had thought of what had, what had happened what had what had occurred and she always wanted to do this she always wanted to climb she always wanted to climb Everest she always wanted to be there and she'd climbed several peaks in Russia with her husband uh, Sergei and in 1992 her her name Yarbrough Francis Yarbrough married Sergei Arsentiev together they climbed many Russian peaks including the first ascent of a peak 5,800 5, meters which they named Peak Goodwill as well as Denali via the West Buttress. Arsentia became the first U.S. woman to ski down Elbrus, Mount Elbrus when she summited to the, its east and west peaks. By this time she developed an interest in becoming the first U.S. woman to summit Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen. In May 1998, Francis and Sergei arrived at base camp. On May 17th, they ascended from advanced base camp to the North Call, and the following day, they reached 25,262 feet, as 21 other climbers reached the summit of Everest from the north. On May 19th, they climbed to 8,200 meters, where Camp 6 was. Sergei reported by radio that they were in good shape and were going to start their summit attempt on May 20th at 1 a.m. A lot of times when they climb, a lot of times when you start to make a summit attempt on mountains as high as K2 or Everest, you start very early in the morning, like midnight or 1 a.m. Because when you make it, the thought is that when you make it to the summit, it's so high up that you're going to have about five, maybe ten minutes, five or ten minutes up there to observe to get the greatest view on earth and to take everything in and then you have to head back down because it's so cold and so high up and it's going to take you so long to get back down that you're, you're going to encounter so many dangers on the way down you have to kind of have to have light on your side and it be during the day so you can be as much protection as possible and that's why they kind of they try to leave on their initial ascent so early in the morning. And they have headlamps so they can light their way as best as possible. On May 20th, after spending the night at Camp 6, they started their summit attempt but turned around at the first step when their headlamps failed. On May 21st, they again stayed at Camp 6 after ascending only 50 to 100 meters before turning around. After, they, after these two aborted attempts on the summit, they began their final ascent on May 22nd. Due to the absence of oxygen supplementation at high altitude, the two moved slowly and summited dangerously late in the day. As a result, they were forced to spend yet another night above 800 meters. During the course of the evening, the two became separated. Sergei made his way down to camp the following morning, only to find that his wife had not yet arrived. Realizing she had been somewhere dangerously high on the mountain, he set off to find her, carrying oxygen and medicine. 
details of what happened next are uncertain, but the most plausible accounts suggest that on the morning of May 23rd, Francis was encountered by an Uzbek team who were climbing the final few hundred meters to the summit. She appeared to be half-conscious, affected by oxygen deprivation and frostbite, also, also high-altitude sickness. Can be come yeah, comes from oxygen deprivation. As she was unable to move on her own, they attended to her with oxygen and carried her down as far as they could. Until depleted of their own oxygen, they became too fatigued to continue the effort. Francis was still alive. As the Uzbek climbers made their way down the mountain to the camp that evening, they encountered Sergey on his way back up to help his wife. This is the last time he was seen alive. On the morning of May 24th, Britain Ian Woodall and South African Cathy O'Dowd and several more Uzbeks encountered Francis's while on their way to the summit. She was found where she had been left the evening before. Sergei's ice axe and rope were identified nearby, but he was nowhere to be seen or found. Both, both Woodall and O'Dowd called off their own summit attempts and tried to help Francis for more than an hour, but because of her poor condition, deteriorating quickly and the perilous location the free and the freezing weather they were forced to abandon her and descend to camp she died as they found her laying on her side still clipped into the guide rope she was age 40 with one son her corpse has given the nickname has been given the nickname sleeping beauty ever sleeping beauty the mysterious disappearance of her husband was solved the following year when jake norton a member of the 1999 Mallory and Irvine expedition discovered Sergei's body lower on the mountain face, apparently dead from a fall while attempting to rescue his wife. So on that night in the 1999 expedition, they like like you just heard, they found his body, and from that assumption, they assumed that he had fallen or he had slipped and fell when he was trying to rescue her. A lot of things that you have to consider when climbing mountains is you have to think that or you have to consider sure your instinct is do you does everyone do you obviously need to help this person who is ailing you need to help this person who can't make down the mountain themselves and who can't who can't move under their own weight you need to help that person that's your instinct and that's what that's what all human instinct is but as every climber and every adventurer is is quick to point out and right to point out that you don't know what you do. You don't know what you'd encounter or what how or how you'd act or how you'd behave until you're in the situation. Being up on a mountain this that high, you can't conceive of how you would truly behave unless you're in the situation. You can say this far down where you can breathe and you have enough oxygen and you can you can act normally how you would act in your person but when these things are deprived you don't have enough oxygen you can't think straight it's so cold you can't move straight you don't know how you'd act you don't know how you'd behave you don't know these things and you can't account for how you'd act and a lot of the times that's been adapted by many uh, expeditions excuse me allergy here <coughs> <coughs> That might happen again. I have an allergy attack that makes me cough. So sorry for everyone's ear there. 
Sorry. Sorry, everyone. But like I said, yeah, you can't in, you can't say how you truly react when you don't have these things at your disposal, when you're not thinking normally. And several years later, several moments later, Kathy O'Dowd wrote a description and gave a description on what her opinion was and what she thought and what her from her point of view what her view was and that came across of what had happened what was happening to to Francis and what she had seen and a lot of this is uh, is my notes taken from the ex- the website the guardian so a lot of this is from the guardian website and also from my notes that I had drawn from them as well and a lot of this and a lot of this this is just Kathy O'Dowd's words Four hours from the summit of Everest, Kathy O'Dowd came across a stricken climber. She, she faced a brutal choice to risk her own life in a doomed rescue or to push to the top. In these messages below, she explains why she left the barely breathing Francis. So this is, this is Kathy O'Dowd's words. And this is what she, what she had written, what she had said as to why she did what she did. We had been on a well-organized and, so far, successful trail towards the summit of Everest, worrying only about ourselves. Now a stranger lay across our path, moaning. Lakpa, L-H-A-K-P-A, shouted, uh, Sherpa, shouted down at me and waved me to move on, to follow him up, up onto the step, the Hillary step. Follow him up onto the step. I looked back at the raggedly jerking figure. Each team or solo climber did, or should, arrive at the moment self-sufficient. Anyone who turned up assuming they could borrow food, clothing, or tentage would receive short shrift. Similarly, you could not climb yourself to a standstill then expect other climbers to risk their lives to save you. Saving someone was not straightforward. There was no emergency number to call, no mountain rescue to whom, no mountain rescue to whom the problem could be handed over. We would not be able to walk away feeling we had done our civic duty and that the experts were now in charge. Anyone who becomes immobile on a mountain as large and remote as Everest is probably going to die. On this side of the mountain, and we would, we would have to get the victim all the way back to base camp before we could contemplate trying to find a helicopter. If they had to be carried, that would require a number of teams, dozens of people, and at least three days climbing. Whoever it was on the rocks in front of me was so badly incapacitated that they had spent the night out on the mountain rather than crawl down. Life lay, life lay in, life lay in keeping moving, as it, as that generated body heat, and with every meter of descent, moved you into, th- every every meter of descent moved you into thicker air. As suspected, we had virtually no chance of saving this climber. We stood to throw away an entire expedition. The money, the time, the thousands of vertical feet of physical and mental effort. We had sponsors who expected us to go for the summit. We had personal ambitions that pointed in the same direction. We were only 240 vertical meters from the top, only 4 or 5 hours in climbing time. We were so close to fulfilling everything we had set out to do. So we threw it all so so we throw it all away for some rescue attempt that was doomed. 
The body was lying in a ghastly inverted V. It looked as if the climber's spine might be broken. If we couldn't walk, if they couldn't walk, there was they were probably condemned. Why waste time, stand around getting cold and demoralized when the attempt was futile? Why not just turn around? Why not just turn away and climb on? This all ran through my head in the space of a few seconds. But all the debates, the issues, the logical analysis were useless. I simply could not do it. I could not put the summit of a mountain ahead of a human life. I would not want to live with myself if I could. However hopeless this person's situation might be, I had to try. I walked back to Ian, Ian Woodall, who was standing with Jang Bu watching, watching Lockbuck climb the first step. That body's alive. I'm going to I'm going to have a look. It took a moment to understand what I it took a, it took him a moment to understand what I was talking about. We can't just leave, I insisted. He nodded and I stepped down from the trail and we walked across the loose shale towards the body. I thought it might be one of the Russian team. The person who was lying with their harness clipped to a line, a fixed rope, stomach uppermost, head and legs dangling down on either side. I knelt down cautiously next to the body and saw it was a woman. Oh, yeah, this line, this line gets me right in the gut. And all these years later, it still, it still hits me right in the gut and right in the heart. And this is what, this is what the body said. And this is what she said. And a lot of stories and a lot of histories have abounded since then saying, is this, is she actually talking? Was she actually saying this to you? Or was she so far gone that the mountain had done so much to her and was her, was her spine broken? And the mountain had done so much to her that basically her, her voice was on a loop and she was just repeating these things and just automatically just like muscle memory, just keep saying these things. Or did she actually mean them? And then, and if she was saying these things, did the emotion that, that initially created these things that put them on a loop actually mean something? That there was emotion. And this, like this, this, this body's words, Francis's words, still got me, still hit me right in the, right in the gut and right in the heart. Don't leave me, the body said, Francis said. Her skin was milky white and totally smooth. It was a sign of severe frostbite, and it made her look like a porcelain doll. Her eyes started. Her eyes stared up at me, unfocusing. Pupils, huge dark voids. Don't leave me, she murmured again. I felt sick. With her long, dark hair, she looked at me. For a shocked second, I felt I was if I was glimpsing a possible future for myself. The fact that she was conscious both encouraged and appalled me. It might be possible to save her, or we might not yet have to leave her, and we might not ha yet have to leave her. I need to fetch the rest of my team, I told her. We have several people here. We will try and help you. I will come back. I promise. Oof. This is just this just this whole thing just, just guts me just totally guts me and Kathy is saying Kathy O'Dowd is saying this is what Francis said to her why are you doing this to me she asked 
Ian and Jungbu came back with me. Lakpa, Pemba, and Xiao Liu, seeing turn, seeing the turn of events, the turn events had taken, began to descend towards us. The woman had no visible, no visible trauma injuries, and her bizarre position turned out to be the result of complete muscular limpness. She was as helpless as a rag doll. It looked as if someone had clipped her harness. It looked as if someone had clipped her harness to the end of a fixed rope, presumably so she would not slip down the slope, and had, had then left her to go for help. Next to her was an orange bottle of oxygen, of Russian make, and a mask. The bottle was empty. While Ian and Jangbu pulled her straight, I collected her down gloves, which had been thrown to one side. Her jacket was over her shoulders, but her arms were not in the sleeves. Our bodies can react bizarrely to trauma. A fairly common occurrence with severe hypothermia is a sense of extreme warmth. The victim might start tearing off clothing. It looked as if she had done this. The men tried to replace her clothing. Her hands were swollen masses, her arms limp. She had no motor control. As Ian tried to get her arms into her sleeves, she gave no resistance and no assistance. Jingbu was trying to give her hot juice from his thermos. Then he reached. Then they reached and grabbed her under one arm and tried to pull her into a sitting position against the boulder. She was a dead weight. The two strong men took several heaves to get her sitting, and then they both doubled over, gasping for breath. It showed us what a, what it would take to carry. To tr- it showed us what it, it showed us what it would take to try to actually carry her anywhere, let alone carry her or drag her for days for days down the mountain. We had no capacity for giving her. We had no capacity for giving her oxygen. Her mask would not fit our bottles. We carried spare bottles, but no spare masks. For the oxygen to have any effect, she would have to be put on high flow and stay on it for hours. A few whiffs would have had no effect. One of us would have to go off oxygen permanently and give her a mask, which would exhaust our spare supplies very quickly. Until we established that there that we had no that the, until we established that we had a real chance of saving her, the risk was too great. We had no means of communication with the outside world. Pemba tried calling base camp, but their set was not switched on. Oh no. Oh god, these words. I'm an American. I'm an American, the climber said. American. But what American team was below us? But the American team was below us. A full day behind. My mind wandered back to what I had seen the day before. Two tiny figures at the foot of the first step. One still. One moving around. Could she be Fran? The bubbly American woman who had sat in her ABC kitchen. ABC Advanced Base Camp. Tend one night, passing the hours while she waited for her husband, the Russian climber. That makes sense. She and Sergei were climbing as a twosome. They had no Sherpas, no oxygen. They would not be in radio contact with others on the mountain. With others on the mountain. But they did not explain how she came to. But that did not explain how she came to have an oxygen bottle lying next to her. 
nor did it explain where he had gone. Three Uzbek climbers were approaching. Will you help us? I asked. This woman is dying. We might not be able to carry her down. Would you help? The leader of the three looked down at me reluctantly. We tried to help yesterday. We left her with oxygen. She is too far gone to help. He spoke into his radio, presumably talking to base camp, to his base camp. However, they did say, watching Ian and Jengbu to see what the decision they took. Ian had the climber by both shoulders and was spe speaking directly at her, his face only inches from hers. You have to help us, if you can help us. We can try to move you down the mountain. If you don't, you are going to die. He was staring into her face, looking for some reaction. There was nothing. She knew we were there, but she was not mentally coherent. It's difficult to know what was left in her head. I noticed her other crampon a few feet below us and took a tentative step down the slope to retrieve it, but, immedi but immediately thought the better of it. The slope was covered in loose rock shards, like a million smashed dinner plates. They were slipping away under my feet, rolling down the slope towards the Rongbuk the Rong Glacier, 4,300 meters below us. It was like trying to move across ball bearings. I could see how a climber, having lost their balance, would not be able to stop the downward momentum. Had that happened to Sergei? Yin and Jengbu had been had been trying to pull the woman into an upright position. Ian thought that if she could take some of her own weight on her own feet, even if she could not actually walk, it might be possible to move her down the mountain with the climber at each shoulder. However, her legs simply crumpled under her weight, as useless as strands of spaghetti. Now I'm not so hungry anymore. I was, I was a little thirsty and a little hungry, now I'm not. We had been with Fran for nearly an hour standing still in temperatures of around negative 30 degrees Celsius. Perched perilously on the step, unstable slope, I could not even stamp my feet for warmth. I was beginning to, beginning to feel profoundly cold. My fingers were almost totally numb. I had full body shivers and my teeth were chattering beyond my oxygen mask. The decision to leave friend came upon us without much discussion. The Uzbek climbers and Lokpa had long been of that opinion. What I, what hope, what hope had I, fit, what hope I had, faded in the face of her incoherence, her physical incapacity. Now Ian and Jangbu straightened up and turned away. She had stopped talking and seemed to have sunk into unconsciousness. The thought of going on was intolerable. I had lost the will to reach the summit. Besides the physical drain of the cold. I was emotionally shattered. I had never encountered anything like this. I had, I had passed bodies. I had friends not come back. I had never watched anyone die. Nor had I had to decide to leave them. It was harder for me because she was a female. It's not that, that, that I thought that women immune... It's not that I thought women immune to the risk were immune to the risk. But it was such a male-dominated environment. Everywhere you turned, everyone you talked to was male. I climbed because I enjoyed it. I climbed for the pleasure of the activity, the surroundings. There was no pleasure left. I wanted to be down, to be off the mountain, 
to have both feet on flat ground. That is all Kathy O'Dowd's words, directly from her own thoughts and her own her own opinions and her own thought processes. Now, I 100% agree with her. 100% agree with her. You, like I was saying earlier, you can think being at this level, ground level, being able to have the oxygen, clear mind and clear thoughts, you can think that this is what you would do. You can think of it with a clear head that you would definitely not act this way or not be this certain way. But when you're up that high, when you're facing this and facing, have your back against the wall, your opinions change. Your views change. And you have to think, are you, are you going to stay up there and are you going to save yourself? Are you going to risk yourself, risk your own life to save someone else's? To save someone in that point who probably was so far gone, you could not have saved them. There's nothing you could have done. Now, the situation also comes up if you think about what Rob Hall did with Doug Hansen. How Doug Hansen was gone and Rob would not leave his side. Rob died a hero. Rob has always been a hero. What he did and what he thought about. And pe- a lot of people think that, sure, he should, have, he should have left. He should have pushed this all aside and he should have saved himself. And is it wrong for other climbers to say, you can't save him? I don't know if you can save him. You need to save yourself and you need to get down and save yourself. I don't think so. Now, I don't think myself, I don't think a, a bad person to have those thoughts or to be able to understand where people are coming from wanting to save themselves but it's like it like a lot of climbers have said it's one thing to think this it's one thing to think of something else and what happened to francis what happened to sergey what happened to rob hall doug hansen andy harris scott fisher what happened to uh, david sharp what happened to all of them is horrifying shouldn't is they are all heroes and they should be envied for for their extreme athleticism and their strength and their willingness and their energy to do what they did and all this is in their memory and to honor what they did to go this far and just I would never have that strength. I would never have that willpower and that ability to be able to do that, to be able to climb a mountain. I would want to see the view from up on the top of Everest, from up on the top of K2. I would want to see that, but I wouldn't... The risk for me personally is not great enough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to risk climbing and going through all that. For people, some people it is, and more power to them, and God bless them. And like I said earlier, this is all in their memory and in their honor for, for what they did and to honor their strength to rise above everything, to fight and to rise above everything that pushed them down and forced them away. And this is, it, this is all been, it's all in honor of them. So as I always say, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much all for listening. Hang in. There's going to be a little more at the end here. Hey guys, check out the best cruising podcast and YouTube channel for everything 
cruising needed, everything cruise, cruising enjoyed, everything you love about cruising. They're experts, they know their stuff, and they're beyond awesome. You'll love the podcast, you'll love their YouTube channel, they're the best cruising podcast out there. Check out Fantastic Cruising on the podcast, on your favorite podcast devices, and favorite podcast programs, and also check out Fantastic Studios on YouTube. They are beyond great. Give and Matt and Kimbra follow. Give them a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and every other podcast you choose. They are beyond awesome, and you won't be disappointed. You won't be upset in any way, shape, or form. Want to go to Vegas? Visit the best places all around the Strip and all around downtown, all around the surrounding areas? Check out the best vlogs for Vegas anywhere on YouTube at Brar Frederick over on YouTube. B-R-O-R Frederick, F-R-E-D-R-I-K. Over on YouTube, go over to Brar Frederick. Subscribe to his channel. Click that bell icon. Click that Hit those those like those like up thumbs. Give give Brar a follow. Give Brar a look. You'll really love what you're seeing. He's an awesome streamer, the best Vegas streamer, and the best thing to watch while you're in Vegas before you go to Vegas, just to experience Vegas as a whole. Please join me in supporting and giving to the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project. When you donate to the Pride Foundation, you join thousands of supporters building a better, safer, more equitable world for LGBTQIA people and their families. Every gift, whether $1 or $1,000, makes an impact for real people and ripples outward into our communities. There are many different ways to join and help the fight. Also go on to their websites for the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project and donate and help in any way possible. The Trevor Project offers support and help for LGBTQIA youth all over the country and all over the world. Please show them some love and give them some support. Mm-hmm.